right, guys, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Have you guys ever heard someone say, is it too loud or is it good? Good? Okay. Have you guys ever heard, man, if I lived during the Holocaust, I would have saved the Jews. I've never heard that before from a friend or from somebody, right? Why do you think they might say that? To feel better about themselves for the horrors they're reading? Or like, man, it's a, the Holocaust is a very heavy subject. So they're reading this and thinking, well, hopefully I wasn't the ones that were going to kill the Jews. What about maybe to let, how, to let people know how righteous they are and receive their praises? Huh? I would have done it. Look at me, how great I am. And everyone's like, wow, you would have done that. You're so brave. Or maybe they actually believe they would have. They actually believe that if they lived in those times, then they would have saved many of them. I had just finished teaching a lesson on the Holocaust many years ago to a sixth grade class. And many of them said, yeah, Mr. Mejia, I would have, I would have saved the Jews. And we started rallying each other. Like, yeah, we would have done it. And they, they, get, they got into this movie. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. And I was letting them. And all of a sudden, in that same class period, a student asked a question. It was not a really good question. Everybody started making fun of that student. Everybody. And usually I would, like, cut it quick. But I let it go. Like, yeah, and then they, they kept on and on and on. Like, okay. So I told everyone to stop. And then I told them, it's funny how all of you say that you would have saved the Jew during the Holocaust, yet you didn't, none of you stood up for the person who was being made fun of. You say that you would have put your life, your family's life, your reputation, you would have given all that up to save somebody in the past, but you had an opportunity to stand for somebody else today, and you didn't do so. Class is quiet. It's easy to judge others in the lack of their response, especially in the past. But for the same reasons they didn't stand up for someone in that moment is the same reason why people didn't stand up in the past. So today we're going to see something similar. In one of Christ's woes against the religious leaders, he goes against this. Many of them said, well, if we would have heard the prophets of old, we would not have stoned them. And Jesus and history today will tell us otherwise. Let's read together Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 36. The Word of God says, What are you scribes and Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill 
and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word. Let's look at some context. Who can tell me in chapter 22, the three times the Pharisees or the Sadducees tried to discredit Jesus? What was one of them? Anybody? One way. Yes. Ian. Yes, they, they try to discredit him on the resurrection. Please don't eat it now. Later. Yes. Taxes. Yes. What else? Over here, this side. What else? What other thing? The, the other thing that they were trying to get Jesus on. Yes. That's connected. That's connected to um, the one of those. So we have. Did you guys already say taxes? Did you guys already say Sadducees? We're missing one. The question. One of the questions. Yes. Greatest commandment. Right. Good. So they try to get Jesus on three separate occasions. Right. And were they successful? No, they weren't successful at all. So Jesus now goes on to the offense, right? And we talked about that. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We said that Jesus is now telling them, look at your pride and humility. You guys are false teachers and religious leaders. Then Brandon introduced the eight woes, right? The eight woes. What were the eight woes? Well, what was a woe? Anybody, can anybody say what a woe is? Yes, Sarah. Claire, 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 yes, Sarah's your mom, Claire. What is a woe? Sorry. Okay, so it's a pronouncement of doom, of judgment. Woe to you. Your condemnation's coming to you. All right? And what were they coming? What was that condemnation? Well, we talked, uh, Brandon talked about five. Condemnation of their false religion in verse 13. Loving of themselves and not others in verse 14. Zealous for what was wrong in verse 15. Being blind guides, verses 16 through 22. And legalism, not true righteousness. Okay? So today, we're going to study the last three woes and Christ's final judgment to these religious leaders. Okay? The woe number six is going to be extortion and self-indulgence. Don't worry about because as they come out, the outline you can copy as they come out. Woe number seven is contamination. Woe number eight is pretension or being snob, snobby. And the last one is Christ's judgment. The theme as we study this passage that I want you to have in your mind is true worship to God begins in the heart and is evidenced by righteous actions. True worship to God begins in the heart and is evidenced through by righteous actions. So with this said, let's go and look at woe number six. Extortion and self-indulgence. Verses 25 and 26. So if you could, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. So let's go back. So as Brandon mentioned last class, last lesson, Jesus is now on the offense, and he's pounding, he's pounding the truth on these religious leaders. And it's not coming nice. It's coming with the weight of the truth that he's speaking to them with. 
And he, we see this by the strong language that he's using. He's calling them hypocrites, usurpers, brutal vipers. This is not just language in a common talk. This is confrontational language for what, for the, for what they're doing, the wrongness that they're doing. Okay? And think about it. If any person in the history of the world is going to admonish these religious leaders, it's going to be Christ. He is the perfect Messiah. He is the perfect man, the perfect leader that exemplifies all the good that we should follow when it comes to leading others to God. So, woe, pronouncement of doom, pronouncement of condemnation. Great doom is coming to you. Woe, Pharisees and scribes. Woe to you. Great condemnation is coming to you. What was a scribe? Anybody? What's a scribe? Text? An expert of the law. Yes. Thank you. What about a Pharisee? What's a Pharisee? Who's a Pharisee? What do they do? Yes. Abigail? A religious leader that enforces the law. Good. Here, pass it over to you. So those are scribes of the Pharisees. And what is a hypocrite? The Greek word here used here is pretender. They do not act on what they believe. So, and by the way, this is the pattern that Jesus is going to follow for the next three woes. He's going to begin with, woe to you religious leaders. Then he's going to call them, you hypocrites. Then he's going to give them an illustration of their hypocrisy. And to make sure that they understand what they're doing, he's going to explain that illustration. He's not going to leave any stone unturned. He's going to make sure that they leave that conversation knowing what they're doing is wrong. So what illustration, that, what, does, what illustration does Jesus give right now? He tells them that they focus on cleaning the outside rather than the inside of their dishes. What do you think is more important? To clean the outside of the dish or to clean the inside of the dish? Okay. How many of you say the inside? Yeah, because if the inside is dirty, you can have a clean outside. But if the inside is dirty, it's good, and you don't want to drink from that. How about both? Right? Both is important. Like, you need both to be clean because it doesn't matter how clean the inside is. If you ever cook chicken and you have the chicken blood and it's outside the cup and the inside is clean, it doesn't matter what time with that bacteria is going to go. You know, it's like, it's disgusting. So, both is important. But here that he's saying, you focus so much on the outside, it's the inside that counts. What does he tell them that they have inside? There are two words there. What does he tell them? What are they full of? Yes. Robbery and self-indulgence. The Greek, ver- ver- the Greek word here used for robbery is violent greed, especially more material wealth. It's not just a robbery. It's a violent robbery. They're going to do whatever it takes to satisfy their greed. Okay? What about self-indulgence? It's the trait of lacking self-control, of rest- lacking restraint or self-control. But what was this that they were indulging? What was this lack of um, self-control and this violent greed that they wanted with the people? They're religious leaders, so what are they taking advantage of? A commentator wrote, They plundered both the souls and the wallets of the people and used the ill-gotten gains to serve themselves. That's what they were doing. They were serving themselves at the expense of the people. And it doesn't matter how they would get it, they just wanted it. Now he's going to further explain his illustration in verse 26. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, 
so that the outside of it may also be clean, or may be clean also. So just like a blind man could not see, the religious leader could not understand. They believed that the outer part of his dish was more important than the inside. They believed that if they did all their man-made works that they themselves invented, that they would be right with God. And that their heart, where no one sees and no one looks, God, he forgives me. It doesn't really matter what's there. I just, I just need everyone to see that I'm, I'm pious, I'm, I'm righteous. Follow me so you can give me your money so I can indulge in my greed. The Greek word used for clean here means in a state of ritual cleanness, cleanliness or to be free of guilt and sin. So what is Christ telling them? What is Jesus telling them? He's saying, and he's saying what he's been saying all along, and, and, and it's, a, it's a great lesson that we've always talked about. What does God look at? Does he look at your actions? Or does he look at what? What does he look at? Mitchell? The heart. He looks at the heart. With the intention of the heart. That is what he looks at. And that is what he's telling them. He's saying, first, clean your inside. Purify your heart. And that will reflect on the outside. This is the same message that the prophets of old warned the people of Israel in the past, and they did not listen. And they're not listening now. Passages like Jeremiah 4.14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Ezekiel 18.31. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Let me ask you a question. Was this type of action wrong? Of indulging in robbery and self-indulgence? Is that wrong? Yes, that, that is. It's totally wrong, right? Where does true worship come from? True worship to God begins where? Where does it begin? In the heart. And it is evidenced by righteous actions. So Jesus is saying, focus on your heart first. Focus on the inside first. And the outside will be evidenced by the inside. That's the first way. Let's move on to the to rule number seven. Rule number seven is contamination. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of a dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. So he starts again with the woe. Great doom is coming upon you. You see Christ again call them, you hypocrites, you pretenders. Then he uses an illustration. What illustration is he using? The Greek word used for whitewash, this is the definition. To be or become covered with a washing consisting of lime and sealing material in water. And what is it used for? Used for whitening walls and other surfaces. Okay? It's like a cleaning system, a cleaning mechanism that they use. And where do they use this? So various commentators wrote the same thing. After, in the month of March, after the, the rainy season ended, this is how the people of Israel would kind of beautify the walls of their homes, beautify the walls within their homes, and would also beautify the tombs. Now you ask, why would they do this, especially the tombs? Well, this happened during the time of Passover, right? So what they wanted to do is that they wanted to make sure that everyone knew as they were coming into Jerusalem to the Passover 
that these tombs would glare of their cleanliness. That way, the Israelites that were going would not get near and become unclean. Because if they got near to the tomb, they would become unclean and they would have to be separated for seven days and they were not going to be able to celebrate Passover. So therefore, they specifically made these tombs extra white to warn people, stay away from these tombs, don't be unclean for the Passover or seven days that you're going to have to dedicate from your life to it. Go somewhere else and then live your life again. Numbers 19, 11 through 12. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanliness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. So what are these whitewashed tombs? What's inside of them? Well, they are full. The word here, the Greek word for full is to contain as much as possible. Full of what? Dead bones. The Greek for dead bones means any substance considered disgustingly foul or unpleasant. Disgustingly foul or unpleasant. So he's saying here, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. All means all. All uncleanliness. If you ever read Leviticus and you see all the things that make you unclean, which is a lot, that is what he's saying. He's saying, you guys on the outside look great, but on the inside, you're worse than the dead tomb that you're trying to avoid. You're contaminating God's people with your actions and your teachings. You're doing worse to the people of Israel than the tombs that you can touch and be unclean. That is what Jesus is telling us. A commentator wrote, The outwardly righteous hypocrite housed a filthy, sinful soul, capable of defiling others around him by his example and his teaching. So what was their self-righteousness doing? It was doing more contamination than the dead bodies found in the grave. Again, another example of Jesus trying to see for them to get to see their heart condition and how they were. So we saw the woe, we saw the hypocrites, we saw the illustration. Now Jesus again is going to explain to make sure they understand it. Verse 28, So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So here means just as mentioned. So just as I mentioned, you too outwardly appear righteous to men. The Greek for lawlessness means the state of being or behaving in open defiance to the law. Open defiance to the law. Jesus was saying, you appear to be clean and nice as a whitewashed tomb, but in the inside your heart is openly defying God's law. It's not by accident. You're openly defying God's law in your heart. And not only that, you're contaminating those around you. They were more interested in pleasing and receiving praises from men than from God, even if it meant that they had to contaminate others with their false teaching. What does God say about the heart? 1 Samuel 16, 7. 
But the Lord, this is when they were looking for the David, and they were going to and his brothers, amongst his brothers. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height or, or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we see the example of the Pharisee in the, in the plaza with the, with the sinner in Luke 18, verses 11 through 14. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay my tithes that all, of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Was this action wrong of contaminating others for their own sake? Is that wrong? Is that true worship to God? But they did all these great things on the outside. Does that count? No, it doesn't count. Because where does true worship come from? Where does it come from? It's in the being. The heart. True worship comes from the heart. And how is it evidenced? By what? By your actions. Good. Let's move on to role number eight. Pretension. Being snobby. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Again, we see the pattern. Woe, judgment is coming to you. Again, he calls them, you hypocrites. And then he references an illustration. What is this illustration? They build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. They build the tombs of the prophets and decorate these monuments because what? They, they want to honor these dead men as they knew they were righteous. These were the prophets of old. These were the ones who gave us the Bible. Moses and, and Samuel and Elijah and, and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. These are important people. How can we not make monuments for them and decorate their tombs? Acts 2.29 says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Meaning they know where it is and they know where the, the saints or the, or the prophets of old are and the kings because they revere them. They're like, what they said was important. It was God's words. So what do they do? They make it a point to make sure that the tombs are nicely built as a format. Look at us. Look at us how, how we regard their words that we're not just going to say, yes, this is true, but we're going to make sure that we decorate their tombs so you can see how pious and righteous we are. But they take it a step further. In verse 30, and they say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding, in shedding the blood of these prophets. See, the prophets of old, they were revered. But they were also persecuted. Why? Because they spoke God's truth to kings and to the people. And you know, the truth that they spoke was not popular truth. It went against the selfish indulgences of the kings and of the people. Because the way they worshipped the other gods made them feel better than the way to worship Yahweh. 
For example, First King 18 through 18, verse, chapter 18, verses 3 to 4. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. And look at what happened to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord in 38, chapter 38, verses 2 to 4. Thus says the Lord, this is Jeremiah talking, He who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and, it, and, his, and have his own life as a booty and, say, and stay alive. Basically, he's saying, I know we're going to be captured, but it's better for us to go than to stay. Thus says the Lord, this city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. What did the officials of the king say? Then the officials said to the king, now let this man be put to death, inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who, left in this, who are left in the city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of his people, of this people, but rather their harm. So the truth was, you're going to get captured. Take it to the bank. It's better if we do this. But that was an unpopular message, and the king and the people wanted him dead. The king, in this case, he didn't do so. He was like, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the low hanging fruit. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to kill him. But regardless, this is what the persecution that these prophets endured. So these religious leaders were saying, if we were alive at that time, we would have never done such a thing. Again, have you heard this before? I would have lived in the Holocaust. I would have stayed and stood up for the Jews. Or if I would have lived during Moses and the Exodus, I would not have grumbled. I would have been thankful for the manna and the quails and the water. I would just be thankful. How could they? If I would have been one of Jesus' disciples, I would not have betrayed him. How could I? I was with him for three years. I can't betray him. Or if I was there at the crucifixion, I would have tried to stop him. We could be tempted to think this way. But the reality is, and the truth is, without a regenerated heart, it's not going to happen. We say things like these to others so that what? Others can give us compliments of our, how spiritual and great we are. The reality is, without a regenerated heart from the Lord, we would do everything that we just mentioned above. The religious leaders were basically saying that instead of killing them, they would have heard the prophets and adhered to what they say. But what's ironic about this? What's ironic? This is... They have the greatest prophet. They have the son of a living God in front of them. They've had him for three years. Yet, they try to discredit him. They call him Satan. And in their hearts, they're trying to kill him. Do their actions show that? That they would have rendered to the prophets? Do the actions show that? That if a prophet came to them right there and dead, that they would hear that prophet? No. They, do it, they didn't do it in the past, and they're not doing it in the present with the Son of God in front of them. Let's continue with verse 31. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. So for this reason, he's saying, for this reason that you think this, you're testifying against yourselves. You know what testify means? You're, you're solemnly asserting something that you're offering first-hand authentication of this fact that you are their sons. You are saying this with confidence. And Jesus is saying, by saying that, it's not helping you. You know why? Have you ever heard this, the saying, like father, like son? 
That is what he's telling them. He's like, I know you're trying to be pious and you're trying to say something great that you, these are your fathers, you would have done it. But by just relating to them, you're condemning yourself. Why? Because just as they were guilty, you are guilty. Like father, like son. Verse 32. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. What does this mean? A commentator wrote that Philip here means there is only so much sin that the Lord will allow without his wrath being demonstrated. This generation would suffer the most in hell because they were the ones that saw Jesus in person and saw his miracles and yet still rejected him. He's basically telling them, go ahead and complete what your ancestors have started since you are the same. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ, Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord, Jesus, and the prophets, and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now Jesus is going to explain this a little further. He's going to make sure that, look, I want you to understand, I want you to hear me, I don't want you to be clear with what I'm saying. He calls them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus refers to them as serpents. Might have had Genesis in his mind. Why? What did the serpent do? The serpent was sly and clever in deceiving and Eve, in deceiving Eve. So they were deceiving the same way God's people as serpents. Is this the first time they're called the brood of vipers? No. Who else called them brood of vipers? John the Baptist. Yes. Remind me to give you a lot of later. John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, uh, verse 7. Brood means the offspring of vipers, which was a venomous snake. He doesn't call them the snake. He calls them venomous snakes. Psalm 58, 3-5 says, The wicked are, are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops its ears, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. These are strong words that Jesus is describing these religious leaders. Brood of vipers, serpents. How are they going to escape the sentence of hell? It's a rhetorical question. They're not. They're not going to escape it. This is a judgment. This is a, a condemnation to them. After all the religious leaders did to the people of Israel, to Christ himself, wrath is coming upon them. Wrath is coming upon them. So... Is being snobby the best way to worship God through your words? Lord, if I would have been there, I would have served you. Is that, does God enjoy that? Does God enjoy simple words? Does that honor and worship God? No, it doesn't. Where does true worship come from? Changed hearts. And how is it evidenced by? Let's move on to the judgment. Christ's judgment. Verses 34 through 36. Therefore, behold, 
I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Therefore, here means because you are their offspring, you will not escape hell, because even though I send you more messengers of God with truth, you will kill them, adding guilt to your sentence already. What are they going to do? That they will kill. James was killed by the sword. Acts 12.2 Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that, it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. What else are they going to do? They're going to kill them? They're going to crucify them. Well, they crucified our Savior. And based on tradition, who else was crucified? Peter, upside down. Some will scourge you. Who is scourge of the apostles? Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, 24-25, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked and a night and day and I have spent in the deep. This scourging, where did it take place? In the synagogue. In their places of worship. Who else? What about Peter and John? Acts chapter 5, 40-42. They took his advice, Gamaliel's advice saying, look, if they're from God, they'll remain. If they're not from God, they're going to dissolve like every other uprising did. And after calling the apostles in, this is the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, they flogged them, meaning they, they, they flogged them, they, they scourged them, they whipped them, and ordered them to not speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, and from, the, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And some will be persecuted from city to city. Basically, all, the majority of the apostles and the early Christians in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Saul was in heartly agreement with putting him to death. This is Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women who would put them in prison. All this ultimately fills up the guilt that Jesus is talking about. This is the guilt that they're filling up, the wrath and the sentence of hell that they can't avoid because all of the things that they kept on doing to God's name. Verse 35, So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. These men that Jesus was sending them, they were sending with good news. And many would repent and believe. But they were also sent with a different purpose. They were sent to be ministers of judgment. What does that mean? The more people heard the gospel and rejected it, the more wrath they were storing up for themselves. Romans 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The commentator writes, It is not that God desires for men to reject His grace and be condemned. But, this is 2 Peter 3, 9. But when they persist in rejecting Him, they bring upon themselves the righteous outpouring of His wrath. The more they hear His truth, 
the more accountable and guilty they become if they continue to reject him. That generation would receive and will receive the most judgment ever because they had the Son of God. And they saw him preach and teach and heal and the authority which he spoke and they rejected him. But let's not leave it there. That was a generation that's going to be suffering a lot. But what about our generation? What do you think of our generation? I think it could be as equally as horrific for our generation. Why? Anybody think why? Why would it be kind of like at the same judgment level when it, when it can help for all these people in our, in 2023? Yes. Yes. Every, the world. Okay. Good. Good. Yes. Other people had the written word, right? But what, how does that affect in 2023 that we have the written word? Come on. Think about it. The judgment of those that saw Christ is going to be worse for them because they saw it. But what about in 2023? What do we all have that is inescapable? Fox? Okay. But a lot of centuries, people had freedom of religion at one point or another. Ian? But a lot of people had the Bible throughout the history of, of the world. Nico? Huh? People, we, sin has been universal since Adam and Eve. Yes. People, we, they've had the gospel. People, all, this, all these things have been, but what makes 2023 different than the rest of our generations? Social media, the internet, yes. Guys, you have... You have the written word of God in any type of translation that you like, in any language, not all, we're still working on that. But you have the availability of this word on top of the religious freedom that you have in this country. And I'm sorry for you guys. You guys have even worse. Because by God's grace, you come to a Bible-believing church that preaches the entire gospel. Day in and day out. All of you here are without excuse. Because your parents, the majority of your parents are believers and they preach the gospel to you all the time they can. And you come on Wednesday nights, the gospel is being preached to you. On Sunday, the gospel is being preached to you. Your small group leaders are preaching the gospel to you. You guys are without excuse. My seniors that I love, when you leave... There is no excuse. You will know if you are or not how you act and how you stay. And when you go to college, you look for a church. And you want to go to church now because you want to, not because your parents force you to. You, none of you are going to say, man, I don't, I just, the gospel wasn't preached to me. I didn't know that I could just say a prayer and I was going to be saved. No, the Bible is clear and this gospel has been preached to all of you. And I pray that has bring fruit to your life. And I pray that when you do go out, that you keep on shining and you keep on being salt and light. And you keep on being his slave. Because that's the purpose of our youth ministry. To walk alongside your parents and help you know, become slaves of Christ. Amen. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. What is 
Jesus do? He mentions the first and last martyr of the Old Testament. He mentions Abel, the first martyr of, for righteousness, of his example of living and caused jealousy that his brother killed him. And the last prophet of the Old Testament, Zechariah, killed for his righteousness as well. He's basically saying, if you were there, you have you were murdered Abel, you were murdered Zechariah, just like you're gonna like just like you're gonna murder me, the Son of God. Why? Why would they do that? Why would these people do that? Like Father. We are children of Adam and have this tendency to reject and disobey God. Romans 5 says, verse 18 and 19, So then as though one, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of, of life to all men. For as, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This is kind of like, it's called the federal headship of Adam. That Adam's sin is like we all sin together with Adam. It's not just Adam. It's us, humanity. Okay? For even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Again, only a regenerated heart can choose God and His plan for salvation. Lastly, verse 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Truly means, take it to the bank, it's going to happen. They had a true Messiah that they rejected. This generation means those that currently saw Jesus and heard His message but rejected Him. This judgment would come soon. Because every time there was rejection of prophets and killing of righteous people, you saw God's righteousness, God's wrath pour out on the people of Israel. What would happen to this generation specifically? Well, their temple will be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And what does this do? The final judgment that, they, that Jesus is giving them kind of like introduces to Drew's lesson that I already gave on Sunday. So I know we kind of mixed that up. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you like father, like son? Why didn't you choose me? And then from there, as we move on in chapter 24, now the disciples are asking him, okay, so what does this final judgment look like? And all of chapter 24 and 25 is going to be talking about that. The warnings and the signs. So as we wrap up tonight's lesson, Please use this as an opportunity to pray that the Lord can reveal what is in your heart. Any of these sins that we just talked about. And that through the power of His Word and the Holy Spirit, we can be renewed. Psalm 139, 23, 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there are any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Guys, victory over sin does not mean that you will stop being tempted. You're actually going to be tempted for the rest of your life. Victory over sin, sin means that you will not fall into that temptation. We see that 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that there is no temptation common to man, meaning you're always going to be tempted until you die. That's okay. Just don't fall into the temptation. That's where it's not okay. And that's where you as a Christian in, dwells with the Word of God and dwells in, in praying and, 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 and serves the Lord in the church and fellowships with each other. All these things help you to walk in the Spirit so you won't be able to fall in that temptation. Please know that in your strength, you cannot prevent any of these things. I know that sometimes we go through these lessons and we're like, oh man, I got, I'm, so, I'm such a sinner, I can't believe it. And that's a good thing. But what I want you to get out is that just don't stay there. You have the power of God within you. 
You have the written word of God that you can meditate on, that you can have victory over your sin if you wanted to. If you put off sin, renew your mind with the word and put on righteousness. This is the blessing that we have. This is walking in the spirit. All the things that we mentioned today, you could be free from if that's what you're struggling with. Not because of you, but because of him. Because of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. So how do we apply it? Number one, pray to God that you can worry about being clean spiritually and not posing in hypocrisy. Your prayer life, your time in the Word, your constantly killing off sin should be more important than obtaining recognition from your parents, from your church leaders, from your peers. Guys, if you're struggling with sin, tell your parents about it. They would love to hear. Why? Because they want to walk with you. Because guess what? Their sin, you probably experience the, the same. And they can help you. The leaders can help you if you want to share with us. We want to, we want to hear. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't think that you're perfect and you have to be perfect. No. We're all trying together to live this Christian life. And God put us all together for this reason. What do you think fellowship means? To love one another. Even with our sins. To help each other to rise up. To get out of that. To, hey, you know what? I, I used to struggle with that. And this is how, these are the verses that I read. And this is what I did. And I prayed. And this is what I would meditate on. And this is what got me out of it. That encourages people. It's better to confess your sin this way. Than to keep it to yourself. And you're like, I don't want nobody to think I'm a sinner. <laughs> We're all sinners. Trust me. We already think you are. Number two, pray to God so that he can help you not contaminate others with your hypocrisy. The Jews did more harm than good by posing and acting righteous when they weren't. True fellowship among believers happens when you are open and sincere with each other, not pretending like you've never struggled with sin. So it's like saying this. A friend comes to you and says, man, I'm struggling with lustful thinking. I'm struggling. I'm looking at things I'm not supposed to on my phone. My parents know about it, but I need help. Instead of you saying, man, I got you, let's pray. If you want, we can call each other, we'll pray to, with each other. Instead of, you're like, man, dude, that's, that's your sin? Dude, that's pretty bad. No, I, I, I sin, I, I can admit, but that one's, that one's bad. Don't do that. Don't do that. Let's be there for each other. Let's be there for each other. When you're honest, other people can feel encouraged because they feel that they're not alone. And they have hope because if you share your testimony of victory, they can also experience that as well. Number three, pray to God to reveal if you have a snobby heart. And ask him to help you identify this sin for you to kill it. Don't ever say that you will never fall into any type of sin. The only reason you don't sin is specifically in ways because of God's grace. If someone comes to you to pray for them, don't automatically feel that you're better because you're not struggling with that sin. That can come to us. That can happen to us all the time. Somebody comes and struggles, hey, pray for my marriage because I'm, I'm having through, through rough times. If your heart goes to, I pray for my marriage, it's really sad. I'm really sad. I haven't prayed for you. That's wrong. That's the wrong attitude to have, guys. Don't do that. Because you know what before 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says? It's 10, 12. And you know what that says? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Lastly, don't be that two-generation Pharisee that saw Jesus in front of him. Don't ignore the gospel any longer. Don't say, I will make Jesus my Lord tomorrow because I want to have fun today. Don't do that anymore. Because God's wrath is building up. And every time you hear the truth and every time you reject it, it keeps on building up and building up and building up. 
And the gospel, the good news is that you can repent and believe. You can call out to the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and He will save you from your sins. If you recognize that you need Him, and you call out for Him to save you, don't let another day pass. Nothing's guaranteed tomorrow. And like we always say, you're going to bow the knee. Might as well do it voluntarily because forcefully, it's not going to be some healing. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the encouragement that we have in your word that, yes, we want to see this thing. We want it to be revealed in our hearts. And please do so, God, even if it hurts us, Lord. But at the same time, thank you for allowing us and giving us the way to kill it to renew our minds with your word and to put on righteousness. Thank you for your word that convicts us, that searches to the deepness of our souls, that convicts us of where we are and where we need to be. Thank you for this group, God, that they come fervently every Wednesday to worship you, to hear by your word. I pray that this word can be fruit in their lives, that they can share their sins with their parents, that they can ask them for help. I pray that you can do this within our group. I pray that the seniors that are leaving, Father, I pray that they can continue to grow in the knowledge of your will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I pray that they can know you as God, as Savior, and blame no one else except themselves for rejecting or accepting your truth. Thank you, Lord, for your awesomeness and your glory and Everything that you give us, Father, we love you, we worship you. It is in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Sorry, it took a little time, more than expected. Uh, the majority of